welcome to Peak True Crime, a podcast telling the dark tales and dastardly deeds in Derbyshire and the Peak District. Bretzel, 1991. Before we begin, I need to admit a vested interest. My own grandparents moved to the UK from Ireland in the 50s. However, that in no way distracts from the fact that Irish immigration has made an enormous contribution to almost every aspect of life in Britain. According to The Guardian, it's estimated that 10% of Britons have at least one Irish grandparent. In the 50s and 60s, young couples, as well as single men and women, made the choppy ferry crossing from Dublin because of religious conflict and dire economic conditions at home. Whereas most Irish emigres settled in London, Liverpool, Birmingham, Manchester and Glasgow, every town and city became home to Irish incomers. And like more modern immigration from Eastern Europe, they found commonality and community through the Catholic Church, bringing new life and vibrancy to a dwindling congregation. One such couple was Anthony and Nolene Hendley. The pair met in their first year at secondary school and remained together throughout and beyond, marrying in 1967. Instead of settling in one of the bigger cities, they made their home in Bredsel, a small village a couple of miles north of Derby. They went on to build a family life, raising three children together, a son Shane and two daughters, Michelle and Dawn. The early 90s weren't a vintage period for the local football team, Derby County. The club, whose home ground at the time was incongruously named the baseball ground, was under the ownership of a certain Robert Maxwell, and relegation saw them languishing in the third tier of English football. The fortunes of the Hendley family, however, seemed to be moving in entirely the opposite direction. Since leaving the army, Anthony had deployed his skills on Civvy Street, working as a catering manager for a chemical company, Luprasol, at their R&D centre in nearby Belper. Nolene was enjoying professional success too. Throughout their married life, she hadn't needed to work, but now, out of choice rather than necessity, she was running three successful slimming clubs across the city of Derby. Summer 1991 saw the wedding of their son, Shane, to Kay McIntosh, a local girl who worked with his sister Michelle. By the autumn of the same year, the young couple were about to buy their first home together. It was for that reason that on the afternoon of the 1st of November, Kay's dad Terry was pulling up outside of Anthony and Nolene's home in his red Ford Fiesta. Though his wife had taken her own life a few years earlier, the marriage between Shane and Kay, and the fact that it had brought the two families together, had been a source of both companionship and connection to him. He counted the couple as friends. Anthony and Terry had readily drink together in the pubs and bars around Derby, and Terry had helped with the lane of paving in the neat garden that sat behind the semi-detached formal council property that Anthony and Nolene outright owned. Alongside Anthony and Nolene, he was going to view a possible first home for the newlyweds. The pair had been living with him since the wedding and were looking forward to taking their first steps into a bright future. Within ten hours, however, here on Coniston Crescent, the blithe scene of parents heading off to support their children in choosing a marital home would be replaced by one of horror and brutality, of agony and murder. With their daughter Michelle living down in London, and Shane temporarily living with his new wife at her family home, 
Dawn was the only remaining child of Anthony Nolene yet to fly the nest. After working all week, she was heading off out to enjoy a well-earned Friday night with friends, leaving Nolene at home alone. Anthony had met up with Terry for a drink not long after the house viewing, so, with her pyjamas on and a bad back, Nolene was going to enjoy the night to herself on the sofa. Televisual delights that evening included the comedy chaos of the Russ Abbott show, while, on the cobbles of Weatherfield, Ken Barlow was rather, inevitably, unlucky in love. The clank of the front gate, followed by a stumble up the step into the kitchen, heralded Anthony's return home. It was just before 11.30, and he'd enjoyed a long evening's drink with Terry. After popping his head around the lounge door, to offer Nolene a cup of tea, Anthony, somewhat unsteadily, made his way upstairs and readied himself for bed. Her bad back meant that Nolene would be spending the night on the sofa. She tucked herself under the blanket and settled back down. Audrey and John Horrocks, the adjoining neighbours at number six, were enjoying a quiet Friday evening at home too. The couple and their 23-year-old son, Glyn, were brought short by a screaming and pounding at their front door. Answering, they ushered the out-of-breath and hysterical neighbour, Nolene, into the hallway, her face blooded. Between tears and wails of anguish, Nolene explained that there was an intruder in her home. Mother and son immediately went to investigate, and cautiously entered through the open front door. The house was in darkness, but for the dancing flicker of the television and an illuminated bathroom. The downstairs was empty, but ascending the stairs, they noticed the carpet, damp with patches of thick, shining liquid. In the bedroom, lay beside the bed, they discovered the still and blooded body of Anthony Hendley. It was 11.50, when the call was connected to the emergency services, and by midnight, paramedics and police were on the scene. The unconscious Anthony was driven at speed to Derby Royal Infirmary, but his condition was so grave that within an hour he was transferred to the specialist neurological trauma centre at the Queen's Hospital in Nottingham. Back on Coniston Crescent, the police began interviewing Nolene. There was a violent home invader in this quiet and peaceful village. With one victim already fighting for his life, it was clear that there was a risk to the public and vital that he be tracked down and detained. After running through Anthony's return home, Nolene went on to explain that, after he'd been upstairs for a short while, she heard three deep thuds. Assuming that he'd fallen, and worried that he hadn't responded to her call, Nolene rose from the sofa to check on her husband. As she moved into the dark, narrow hallway, out of the corner of her eye, she noticed the closed curtains of the backroom patio doors. They were billowing in the wind. At this point, a man appeared in front of her and without warning, hit her straight in the face. The force sending a tumbling to the ground. Nolene screamed for Anthony, who, within a beat, came out of the bedroom and into view at the top of the stairs. His head and face were beaten and bleeding, his hair matted and his wounds open and raw. With this, Nolene fled to raise the alarm and in seconds found herself banging on the door of the Horrocks's at number six. Clearly affected as a consequence of her own attack, as well as anxious for her husband, Nolene was eager to get to the hospital. Understanding that further questions could wait until later, she was rushed away from the scene and to Anthony's bedside. Detective Inspector Peter Hall was placed lead investigator on the case, and during the initial forensic and investigative pass of the house, several specifics of the scene, as well as the initial witness statements, posed some challenging questions. The initial assumption was that the attack was, to use a vernacular, a burglary gone wrong. 
Bretzel at the time, as it still is today, is an area of Derby in which crime is vanishingly rare. That in itself wouldn't really tout as a possibility. However, the ferocity and sustained nature of the attack was completely out of proportion. Anthony suffered a great many blows to the head, inflicted with a rolling pin which had originated from the kitchen downstairs and was found later on in the house. Was it realistic for a burglar who had entered through a set of patio doors would move from the dining room into the hall, into the kitchen to pick up a rolling pin before ascending the stairs? In attempting to reconstruct the attack, the police ran into further inconsistencies. There seemed to be two areas of the home in which the attack had taken place. The bathroom, in which the light was on, and the bedroom, where Anthony was discovered by Glyn Horrocks. Nolene stated that immediately after discovering the intruder, she called Anthony and he came out of the bedroom onto the landing. If that was the case, what would explain the pools of blood in the bathroom? It's understandable that in the chaos of the attack, she may have misremembered or misunderstood what had occurred, but combined with a missing bulb on the upstairs landing, suspicions that all may not be as it seemed began creeping into the minds of investigators. It seemed unlikely that Nolan herself could have been personally responsible. The blood spatter on her pyjamas was consistent with the fact that she had only found its way onto her as she climbed up the stairs. The aggression of the onslaught inflicted on Anthony would have left his attacker covered from head to toe in blood. Was it possible that the burglary gone wrong theory deserved to be superseded by one where Anthony was a deliberate target of the attack? On the morning following the attack at Queen's Medical Centre in Nottingham, Anthony's prognosis wasn't good. The vicious barbarity of the attack resulted in severe traumatic brain injury, leaving doctors to conclude that continuing treatment was not in his best interests, as the likelihood of surviving surgery was minimal. Surrounded by his children and wife, he remained unconscious his life only sustained with the help of life support. With the neurological damage of such catastrophic consequence, supported by her family, Nolene made the difficult and unenviable decision to switch off his life support machine. At 9.20, on the morning of Saturday the 2nd of November 1991, Anthony Patrick Hendley was pronounced dead, and in an investigation that was less than 24 hours old, was redesignated as a murder inquiry. In the following weeks, the police investigation began exploring Anthony's background, examining the circumstances surrounding his fatal attack and establishing exactly what had occurred. Pathologist Dr Clive Bush confirmed that as many as 25 blows had been made to Anthony's face and head area with a blunt object, affirming that the rolling pin found at the scene was the murder weapon. Any one of the blows, Dr Bush finished by saying, would have been enough to end Anthony's life. The conclusion was drawn, therefore, that the overkill nature of the attack suggested a crime that was targeted and driven by something other than a burglar caught in the act. As with any murder investigation, Nolene and the children were assigned a family liaison officer. The College of Policing, the body responsible for oversight of all police and civilian police staff training in England and Wales, describes the role of a family liaison officer as follows. The primary purpose of a family liaison officer, or FLO, is that of an investigator. Their role is to gather evidence and information from the family to contribute to the investigation, preserving its integrity. The flow also provides support and information in a sensitive and compassionate manner 
securing confidence and trust of families of victims of crime, primarily homicide, ensuring family members are given timely information in accordance with the needs of the investigation. It's a common misconception that family liaison officers are simply there to provide tea and sympathy to those close to the victim. But as the College of Policing articulates, the primary focus of their work is the gathering of intelligence and insight into the victim and their nearest and dearest. Two experienced detectives, Joe Oral and Graham Freer, were assigned family liaison duties and before long began notice that Nolene may not have been as honest and reliable as first assumed. There seemed to be two sides to her character, one she shared with the public and another one in private. For most of the time, Nolly was hostile to the police and cold, not wishing to engage with detectives or showing much interest in the progress of the investigation. In front of the cameras though, it was showtime. Nolene allowed herself to be photographed dressed in full morning black while attending Mass, something her son Shane commented that she'd not done for over ten years. At the funeral, an operatic level of wail and wane was staged for her family and friends and assorted media. It was in a press conference, though, that suspicions began to harden. It would be 21 years on from Nolene's own media appeal, the Derbyshire Constabulary would hold one of the most watched, re-watched and analysed press conferences in British criminal history. In 2012, Mike Philpott, a grieving father who, just days earlier, had lost his six children in an arson attack on his home, appealed for anyone with information to come forward. In it, he wept in the manner of a soap actor, shoulders shaking, back hunch, and a tissue dabbing his conspicuously dry eyes. Nolene's performance was slightly more sincere. Her voice cracked with agony when discussing her husband's fate. She at least had tears in her eyes. Watching live at the Divisional Police Headquarters in Ripley, however, the two family liaison officers shared a look. Something wasn't right. After taking their suspicions to Detective Inspector Peter Hall, it was decided that a small team be set up to investigate Nolene and her possible hand in her husband's death. Motive means opportunity. It's a US TV-inspired popular cultural summation of a trifecta by which a crime is analysed and the perpetrator identified. But in the murder of Anthony Headley, and the possible involvement of his wife Nolene, the first, motive, was the primary focus of detectives. While Nolene would have benefited financially from Anthony's death, a single payout of less than £100,000, plus a monthly pension of £285, it seemed unlikely as a sole incentive for murder, In combination with further motivation, though, maybe. Looking into her life, it seemed that Nolene's key focus, beyond her family, was her slimming clubs. Though all members spoke warmly of her personally, and gave no indication that they thought she had anything to do with the murder of Anthony, one detail did come to light. A month or so earlier, at a meeting at the swimming club in central Derby, Nolene received a bunch of anonymous red roses. With what the investigation had learned of her relationship with Anthony, it seemed unlikely that he was the sender, and a huge focus was placed on finding out who had sent them. Calls to every florist in the area revealed a name, a name which the inquiry had already come across. All families have secrets. The reasons for these secrets being kept are as varied as the details of each confidence. Sometimes they serve to bind a group together. Sometimes they are used as tools of manipulation. In the case of the secret of at least two of Nolan's children were keeping, it was to save one they loved 
from heartache. Shane and his new wife Kay were living with her father, Terry McIntosh, while they saved money for their new home. Despite working hard, they needed to rely on the extended hospitality of one parent or the other in order to squirrel away enough to save for a mortgage deposit. The situation, though not ideal, worked well for all parties. Terry's wife died of suicide three years earlier. Since then, his daughter Kay had committed to supporting her father and the delicate transition from supportive daughter to married woman could be eased by her making sure everything around the house was shipshape. A few months before the murder of Anthony, while cleaning her father's bedroom though, she made a startling discovery. Beneath his wardrobe, she found a photograph of her new mother-in-law, in a pose that in 70s sitcom parlance could be described as saucy. Smiling into the lens, she has the hem of her long white cotton dress lifted up to her thigh, revealing the tattoo, with the words, Kiss me all over, inked in an arc. Tattoos today are relatively ubiquitous. Whether memorialising a lost loved one, or expressing love for a beau, or simply letting the world know your commitment to staying sexy and not getting murdered, one in three UK adults now has at least one tattoo. In 1991, almost a decade before David Beckham's first visit to a parlour, seeing someone with one was noteworthy, particularly a married mother of three, in her 40s, living in a semi-rural English village. The discovery was equally shocking to Kay's husband. However, when Shane challenged his mother, she tried to laugh it off as a bit of fun. Knowing his father, though, a man even the investigation had established was unlikely to have sent flowers to his wife, made him wonder who exactly his mother imagined would be kissing her all over. Shane's sister, Michelle, had even greater confirmation of her mother's infidelity. Nolene had told her, and made her daughter complicit in providing an alibi, enabling Nolene to spend weekends at a time away from Anthony. Though neither brother nor sister knew the secret the other was keeping for their mother, they both came to the same decision, that no good would come from telling their father. Beyond the reality of being told that his wife was having an affair, that the man involved was someone he considered a friend would have added greater insult to injury. The pair also knew that Anthony could be stubborn and pig-headed, and the thought of an acrimonious divorce and the impact they would have on the family kept their silence. All the while the police were digging further into Nolene's private life. After discovering that the sender of her anonymous rose was Terry, they re-interviewed friends and members of the Slimming Club. Shane had already made the family liaison officers aware of the photograph, and with this information to hand, they could ask specific questions about her relationship with Terry. What was unearthed was the confirmation they were looking for. One member of the club explained that she'd also provided Nolene with an alibi for spending time with Terry. Her reluctance to let the police know this when first questioned was motivated by the fact that she herself was having an affair and Nolene provided a similar cover story. With the affair between Nolene and Terry firmly established, the why factors of infidelity and financial gain having been established, the focus of the investigation shifted to a question of how. It seemed unlikely that either of the two lovers could have committed the murder themselves. Terry with a solid alibi, and Nolene ruled out as a result of the thorough forensic scrutiny of the scene. With clear questions to answer, Detective Inspector Peter Hall decided it was time to bring the couple in for questioning.
contract killers in popular culture enjoy several common characteristics. The cliché of an idiosyncratic and pathologically focused individual, single-minded and ruthless, they're fabulously rewarded nomads who are feared and admired in equal measure by their paymasters. Think Villanelle in Killing Eve. Think John Travolta in Pulp Fiction. Think Leon in... well, Leon. Hold those images in your mind for a second while I count down. Three. Two. One. Now, cast them all aside. May I introduce you to the man Nolene and Terry chose to kill Anthony Headley. A Derby-based petty criminal called Paul Buxton. Buxton was a friend of Terry. A self-styled hard man, he had a record for minor criminal convictions. The idea that such low-level criminality somehow qualified him as an efficient and effective hitman was maybe a stretch too far. Buxton came to the attention of detectives during the investigative work that was running parallel to the interviews with Nolan and Terry after their relationship came to light. Standing out as uncharacteristically long, a 15-minute phone call took place between Terry and Buxton in the weeks before the murder. It was the one and only time, according to landline records, that the two had spoken on the phone and as such drew the attention of the investigators. Speaking to Buxton, investigators inquired as to the nature of the conversation. Unconvincingly in the view of detectives, Buxton claimed not to know McIntosh and had no recollection of the conversation. Whether it was an aching sense of guilt or the realisation that his explanation lacked credibility, within 24 hours, Buxton was sat in an interview room and confessing to the murder of Anthony Hendley. Although at the time he was unaware, both Terry and Nolene had already admitted to their relationship and the plot to kill Anthony. Though they hadn't disclosed Buxton's role in the murder, in an acknowledgement that it was only a matter of time before the police had the full details of the plot, he, to use a technical term, sang like a canary. His disclosure, and that of the other two, painted a picture of not only the determination of Nolene and Terry to see Anthony dead, but also of how entirely ill-considered and callous the whole conspiracy was. On a weekend away in North Wales, Nolene and Terry first discussed, then decided on the idea of murdering Anthony. Reporting on the killing, the press contained several salacious commentaries and speculation about the couple's illicit liaisons. But what is known as fact is that in days of returning home, Terry made his 15-minute phone call to Buxton. It was decided that Buxton would be paid close to £5,000 for his services, with £1,000 paid up front, the balance when Anthony's estate was settled. Withdrawing the £1,000 in £200 instalments, Nolene handed the cash to Terry within 72 hours of returning to Derbyshire. If the plot hadn't ended in the death of an innocent father and husband, the six attempts to murder Anthony Hendley would have been comical. Five failed endeavours ultimately led to the annihilation of human life that was as clumsy as it was senseless. What follows is a timeline of events which, to the outside eye, might seem absurd, but was ultimately to find a fatal conclusion. The UCI Cinema and the Meteor Centre, a retail park a couple of miles south of Derby City Centre, tickets for an evening screening in 1991 cost £3.30. The weekend of October the 11th, the programming included Robin Hood, starring Kevin Costner, the Irish R&B musical The Commitments, and ironically, the British true crime classic Let Him Have It. A plan had been hatched that Anthony and Nolene would go to see one of the films, and at the end of the evening, while returning to the car, Buxton would jump the couple, killing Anthony before fleeing in the car 
driven by an unknown accomplice. After paying his accomplice a down payment of £450 though, the getaway driver refused to take part, pocketing the £450 as it was more than covered the money Buxton already owed him. Buxton therefore found himself lurking in the shadows on the edge of a patch of wasteland which doubled as a car park for the cinema. Whether he'd positioned himself in the wrong place or Nolene led Anthony in the wrong direction, all he saw of the married couple that night was them disappearing arm in arm in entirely the opposite direction from where he stood. Never mind, thought Buxton. There'll be another chance. Without a reliable accomplice, a new plan was needed. Terry would be involved this time. He'd take Anthony out for a drink somewhere in the city. Terry would leave Anthony at the car while he went to pay for a parking. And at this point, Buxton would strike. Wouldn't suspicion fall on Terry, the only known person to be with Anthony at the time though? Terry had thought about that. He'd get Buxton to run him over and break his legs, you know, to make it look authentic. This plot also failed, abandoned just hours before. Buxton, while comfortable killing an innocent man, didn't quite have the stomach to run over someone he considered a friend. Returning to first principles, the pair then resurrected the cinema plan. That Saturday, just seven days since the previous failed cinema attempt, McIntosh and Buxton met in the car park of the Garden City Tavern. After a couple drinks to settle their nerves, the pair set off on the five-minute walk to the cinema. They knew that in 15 minutes or so, Antony and Olene would be leaving through the main entrance and out into the car park. With a green knitted balaclava in one pocket, incidentally knitted for him by Nolene, and a length of electric cable in the other, Terry was going to lead the attack, with Buxton there to back him up should he be needed. Despite the time ensuring they were in the correct spot, the endeavour also ended in failure. Just as the pair were about to pounce, two men came walking behind Anthony and Nolene. For the third time in the week, Antony had unwittingly escaped with his life. Considering the need to reduce the number of variables that could hinder the plot, Terry and Buxton decided that attacking Antony in his own home would be their best option. Terry, as usual, would be accompanying Nolene to a swimming club the following Tuesday. As this will provide Terry with a solid alibi, Buxton would take the opportunity of Antony being home alone to break into the house and attack him there, setting the scene to look like a burglary gone wrong. Just hours before, and without providing any excuse, Bolton phoned Nolene directly to say he wasn't able to do it that night, so the hit was off. Several other plans came and went. Running Anthony over on the street? Too public. Too much chance of being seen. Attacking Anthony as he left a colleague's retirement party. Anthony caught a cold that night and didn't go. Terry was starting to get frustrated. He just wanted it all over. His anger, though, was nothing compared to Nolene's, who demanded meeting Buxton face to face to impress on him how much she wanted her husband dead. At this first meeting... Buxton was left with no doubt of her intentions towards her husband. She hated the bloke, he said. I've never seen anyone be married to someone for so long and hate them so much. Friday the 1st of November was the final and fatal attempt on Anthony's life. He and Nolene, alongside Terry, went to visit the prospective first-time home for the newlyweds, Shane and Kay. Later in the evening, Terry took Anthony out for a drink. Returning home, Anthony would be confronted and killed by Buxton. With her husband not due home for a while yet, and just herself at home, 
Nolene let Buxton into the house just before 10.30. In advance, she'd removed the bulb from the light that illuminated the hallway, stairs and up onto the landing. Furnishing Buxton with a rolling pin, she led him to the box room where he was to hide until Anthony's return. Stumbling into the bathroom, a little worse aware, the first blow from the rolling pin came crashing down on the back of Anthony's head. Downstairs, Nolene heard a shriek of pain from her husband. What followed was almost a minute of chaotic crashes and cries. The battle punctured by blow after blow of the rolling pin until the house fell silent. But not for long. Somehow, Anthony had survived and getting to his feet, pushed Buxton to one side and staggered, half-conscious, into the bedroom. It was here the final, devastating attack took place, leaving Anthony motionless and lifeless beside the bed. Buxton's slow, heavy footsteps descended the stairs. The previous day, Nolene asked Anthony to withdraw £1,465 from the building society. The reason she'd given was that she wanted to buy some of the government's second tranche of shares in British Telecom. As he reached the foot of the stairs, Nolene handed the cash to Buxton. In return, Buxton punched Nolene straight in the face with one direct jab to the nose. She was shocked, until she was reminded that she too was meant to have crossed paths with the burglar, and in what felt like seconds to Nolene, he was off and out into the night. Left alone, Nolene moved upstairs. The agreed narrative that after her brief encounter with the burglar, she crawled up the stairs and discovered the body of her husband. She followed through with it. As she entered the bedroom, two things became obvious. The first was that Anthony was nowhere to be seen. The second was that there was a noise coming from the bathroom. Backing out onto the landing, she was stood face to face with her bloodied and beaten husband. Screaming, she fled downstairs and out into the street. A murder plot that had suffered so many false starts now seemed to be ending in almost the same way. He was still alive. She just needed to stick to the plan. Right now, she had no other option. She banged on the door of number six, the home Audrey and John Horrocks shared with their son, Glyn. From that point on, the next hours passed in a daze. She took Audrey and Glyn to the house, where they discovered Anthony, dying in the bedroom, just inches from the phone that sat on the bedside table. The trial for the murder of Anthony Patrick Hendley opened at Nottingham Crown Court on the 23rd of November 1992. Each defendant was represented by separate legal teams, so the benches at the front of the court were packed shoulder to shoulder. Described by the prosecution as a trial at the heart of which was a fatal attraction, the hearing lasted two weeks. Though each admitted to playing a part in the murder, none expressed any actual responsibility for the death of Anthony. Buxton suggested that Anthony was still alive when he left the house, despite the two separate beatings he carried out. He also challenged that he only struck Anthony five times, insinuating that Nolene was responsible for the 20-plus fatal blows which the post-mortem ascribed as the cause of death. As far as Nolan and Terry were concerned, each attempted to point the finger at the other as being the driving force behind the plot, portraying themselves as a naive, love-blind innocent who was manipulated into playing their part by a wicked and controlling lover. The jury, however, delivered a clear and unanimous verdict in just under three hours. All three were found guilty of murder.
though they agreed with the prosecution that it was only Buxton who'd physically attacked Anthony, Nolene and Terry were found guilty of murder by joint enterprise. The legal notion that an individual can be found guilty of a crime if they've aided in the planning and execution of the act. Sentencing took place the following day with the judge, Mr Justice Tolland, withering in his condemnation of the trio. It's not just the fundamental wickedness of plotting to murder a man, he said, but the fact that it persisted over a period of a month on an almost daily basis, culminating in a murderous attack. Handing down a sentence of life to each of them, chaos erupted in court. Nolene wailed and collapsed on the floor of the dock, while rival family members in the public gallery broke out into a scuffle. The dramatic close of the trial laid bare a plot, however chaotic, that ended in the murder of an innocent father of three. Offering as a defence, Nolene stated that, because of her Catholic faith, divorcing Anthony was never an option. The resulting murder, she claimed, seemed the only way she could start a new life with her lover. As it was, since the trial, the pair have never seen each other again. Though they wrote to each other at the start of their sentences, even this contact dwindled over time. A relationship, born of passion, resulting in a cruel and cowardly act of violence, fell away to nothing. Broader familial relationships suffered, a devastating fallout. Shane, Nolene and Anthony's son, was a prosecution witness in the trial, and with his two sisters standing by their mother, this caused an unreconcilable rift between the sisters and their brother. Unexpectedly, maybe, the marriage between Shane and Terry's daughter Kay survived. The pair are still happily married today and run a successful business selling printing hardware and consumables. Any couple that set up and survive in business together have to have a strong relationship. The challenges and stresses of your entire lives being wrapped up in one thing are immense and I can't help thinking that the will to succeed and commit to each other must have been forged in that first year of their marriage when the violent and brutal murder of Anthony Patrick Hendley tore a family apart but somehow through the chaos their love endured. If you've listened to the podcast before, you'll know that visiting the locations and places that are relevant to the case, I think not only gives them, gives me a better idea of the incidents that have occurred or chapters within the stories, but also I hope brings you a little bit closer to the reality of of what happened. One of the things I'm less keen on is visiting the homes and gawking in the windows of the houses of either victims or perpetrators as I think it's an intrusion a bit too far. So for this episode I found myself on a retail park Um, a five minute drive from Bredsel where Anthony and Nolene lived at the cinema where two of the attempts on Anthony's life took place it's next to a busy A road um it's got the usual collection of takeaways, fast food, uh, electronic stores. There's also businesses nearby and a huge, huge number of car showrooms. 
that's today at the time there really wasn't very much here and when there's talk of the wasteland where they park their car and the shadows that Buxton and Terry and Buxton on both occasions they were here would have been lingering it's quite difficult to picture now on the cinema there's posters for Black Adam this Christmas they're promoting the film adaptation of the stage musical of Matilda when Nolene and Anthony came here though there'd have been posters up for Robin Hood Prince of Thieves and also a British film called Let Him Have It in Let Him Have It it tells of a man called or a young man called Derek Bentley who was 19 in 1952 and his companion Christopher Craig who was just under 16 at the time and they were both convicted of the murder of a police officer although one of them only pulled the trigger was only responsible for the physical act of murder both were found guilty in a joint enterprise and the story of this case is of a joint enterprise in the case of Bentley and Craig it was 1952 in Croydon in South London and they went Craig with a gun and Bentley with a knife to break into a, a chocolate factory. They were spotted by a little girl who would, she lived opposite the factory and was just idly looking out the window and she saw the two men break in and within minutes the police were there the police surrounded the building cordoned it off and moved onto the roof where Bentley and Craig were within minutes Bentley was apprehended and for 15 minutes there was a standoff between Christopher Craig and the police and this is where the title of the film comes from let him have it because it's assumed or it's clear was claimed at court that the while he was in police custody unarmed at the foot of the building far away from where the gun actually was that Derek Bentley shouted let him have it and that resulted in the near 16 year old pulling the trigger and firing the gun that shot dead Detective Constable Sidney Miles. Christopher Craig was under the age of maturity so he was given an indeterminate sentence at Her Majesty's pleasure. I was released after 11 years but because because Bentley was 19 he was sentenced to death and hung there's a great deal even at the time scepticism as to the entire responsibility that Bentley had for the murder He was said to have the mental age of an 11 year old. He was not allowed to do national service because it was believed he didn't have the mental capacity to undertake even the most basic training. And for decades his family fought 
to have his name cleared that he shouldn't have been put to death Chris Eccleston played Bentley in the 1991 film Let Him Have It and Bentley's sister fought for decades until 1993 when he received a royal pardon but the family kept on fighting because the pardon wasn't an exoneration but an apology and forgiveness and in 1998 a full appeal hearing quashed the conviction and found Bentley to be innocent of murder. In this case there are three people who were so intrinsically linked to the murder of Anthony that as thin as the line of joint enterprise was in the murder of Sydney Miles cord that bound them together in the conspiracy a brutal violent killing was as tight and strong and definite as could be